I'd like to ask you to take your Bible this morning to the book of Acts, and we're going to look at a portion out of Acts chapter 20. This may seem a little odd to go to Acts when we are beginning a series on grace-enabled, gospel-focused life stewardship. But there are powerful things that happen when you hear the final words of somebody. And the Apostle Paul, who was well-known and deeply loved by the Ephesian elders, was on his way to Jerusalem, and he had come to a town, to a little port city near enough for them to travel to meet him, and he recognized and realized that this was going to be the very last time on earth they were going to be together. And so when you get into Acts chapter 20, you can sense the, the poignancy, you can sense the heartfelt nature of what Paul is saying to these men that he had labored with and that he had served as he says his final things to them. And I want to pick up that uh, reading together in verse 32. And now I commend you to God and to the word of his grace, which is able to build you up and give you the inheritance among all those who are sanctified. So he commends these elders and he commends the churches in the area and especially the church at Ephesus to the grace of God and to the word of that grace for the building up and the equipping of something in their life. And then he talks about an inheritance that God has given to them. And then he goes on in verse 33, and he says, I coveted no one's silver or gold or apparel. You yourselves know that, those hands, that these hands ministered to my necessities. He's probably holding out his own hands at that moment. You know that these hands have ministered to my necessities and to those who were with me. In all things, I have shown you that by working hard in this way, we must help the weak and remember the words of the Lord Jesus how he said, it is more blessed to give than to receive. You know, when you think about the exhortation that Paul is giving to these men, and that this is the very last thing he is going to say to them, he says to them, I want you to remember something that Jesus himself taught you. I want you to remember what he said, it is more blessed to give than it is to receive. Now, those words that Paul quotes from Jesus are difficult on many levels. One level of difficulty is found in, in the fact that nowhere in the four Gospels do we have a record of Jesus ever saying this. And so it seems a little odd that Paul would establish an entire argument that he's making to the elders of a church uh, that, that he is entrusting to the care of God on a statement that we don't have anywhere else in Scripture. Now, obviously, the fact that Paul said it under inspiration assures us that Jesus said it somewhere in his ministry. But secondly, it's difficult because a statement like this runs radically counter to everything we have learned, observed, or experienced in our own life. Many of you have been the recipients of somebody else's transformative generosity. Some of you know what it is like to receive a gift you weren't anticipating, 
but that you desperately needed, and it made an incredible difference in your life. And in that moment, you learned how blessed it was to receive. Some of you perhaps have friends or a family member whose life was actually spared by somebody else's radical generosity that made a medical treatment available to them, or perhaps even donated an organ by which their life was spared. And again, you witnessed and perhaps even experienced how blessed it was to receive. And so it goes radically counter to everything we know, everything we experience, and everything we see to hear Jesus say and to hear Paul affirm that it is more blessed to give than it is to receive. Maybe Paul was referencing the statement and the teaching that Jesus gave when he started talking to his disciples in Luke chapter 22. This is the section in Luke that references the Sermon on the Mount that we have in Matthew chapter 5. And right in the middle, really at the culmination of the heart of that message, is what Jesus said to his disciples, uh, that instead of spending all of their strength and investing all of their time and effort seeking after the temporal needs they had, things like food and shelter and clothing, instead they ought to give their strength and they ought to invest their resources in seeking first the kingdom of heaven. That teaching follows the parable of a rich, wealthy man who decided to build barns to house more and more of the wealth that he was accumulating. You know the story, you know the parable as the teaching of the rich fool. And Jesus talked about the fact that on the night this man's soul was required, he left all of that wealth behind for others, and he was given, he was called to give an account for his own covetousness that had rendered him poor before the Lord. And so perhaps this is what Paul had in mind when he said to the Ephesian elders, and really to us, Jesus himself taught you that it was more blessed to give than it is to receive. Here's how Jesus ended that parable and that teaching. In Luke chapter 12, verses 32 and uh, 34, he said this, Fear not, little flock, it is your Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. Notice how he talks about the flock. It is little, it is small, it is weak. It doesn't have this world's resources. And, and Jesus says as their shepherd, fear not to them. And here's the reason. Your Father has chosen out of His good pleasure to give you the kingdom. And because He's given you the kingdom, here's what you can do. Sell all of your possessions, give to the needy, provide yourselves with money bags that do not grow old, with a treasure in the heavens that does not fail, where, thief, where no thief approaches and no moth destroys. And then, of course, the very familiar statement that ends all of that, where your treasure is, there is your heart also. You say, well, why did we look at all of that? And, and here's the reason why. The secret to radical generosity, the kind of generosity that Jesus is calling for, is not in you. It's in God. 
The secret to radical generosity is not in you, it's in God. And if we don't begin there, if we don't understand that, then everything else we're going to talk about for the next several weeks is just going to be us trying to get our thinking around how it's better for us to do something that God called us to do without understanding that at the heart of it, when we are radically generous, we are like God. In other words, there is, there is no hope of radical generosity in Sam Horn's life unless God has first been radically generous to me. You and I are never more like God than we are when we mirror the radical generosity that He has given to us. And the radical generosity that God has given to us is summed up in that little phrase, it has been the pleasure of God. It is, it is His good pleasure to give you the kingdom. And so as we talk about radical generosity and biblical stewardship, let's begin by looking at the meaning of that idea. What do we mean by grace-enabled gospel stewardship. Well, let me give you a definition of this. It is the ongoing, selfless, sacrificial living that abounds in generous giving out of every area of my life. It is the ongoing, the continuity, this is not a one-off, it's the ongoing, selfless, sacrificial living. Notice I use the word living before I say anything about giving. It is the ongoing, selfless, sacrificial living that abounds in generous giving. My living ought to produce an abundance of the right kind of giving. So out of my living abounds a generous giving that flows out of every area of my life to the glory of God for the good of others and to the growth of of the gospel. That's really what we're talking about. And we do this using resources God has given us, our time, our talent, our treasures. This is what Peter talked about in 1 Peter 4.10, as each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. We are to use the time and the talent and the treasure God has given us with the strength that God supplies. I'm to use the resource God has given me with the strength that God supplies. And that's what Peter went on to say in 1 Peter 4.11. Whoever speaks as one who speaks oracles of God, whoever serves as one who serves with the strength that God supplies. And so as you and I think about what grace-enabled gospel stewardship is like, it is, it is us using resources that God has already given to us for His purposes and for His ends, for the purposes and the glory of the one who entrusted them to me. And that's how Peter ends that little paragraph. In order that in everything, God may be glorified through Jesus Christ to him be glory and dominion forever. So, so when we're talking about grace-enabled gospel stewardship that flows out of our life, it, it starts here. It starts with us using 
Everything God has given us, in essence, the sum total of who we are, our time, our talents, our treasures, using the resources God has given us with the strength that God gives and that God supplies for the purposes and the glory of the one who entrusted all of those things to me. This kind of life isn't normal. It isn't natural. You weren't born thinking this way. I didn't just sort of come into this in my own thinking. It has to be cultivated intentionally. It has to be developed persistently and consistently and prayerfully. It's an attitude of life. Somebody described it this way. It's a habitude that has to come out of an attitude that flows out of gratitude and therefore becomes a habitude, a habit that comes out of an attitude that flows out of gratitude. This is exactly what Jesus is talking about and what Paul refers to when he talks about grace-enabled, gospel-focused stewardship. It is using my life, everything about it, in these ways. And so that brings us to the second thing we want to ask this morning, and that is this. What is the manifestation of this? What does it manifest in my life? When this is operative, and this is going on in my life, how, how does it manifest itself? And it manifests itself in this way. It manifests itself through a life that is committed entirely to kingdom advancement. Kingdom advancement that is motivated by faithful stewardship. Kingdom advancement motivated by faithful stewardship. What kingdom are we talking about? The kingdom that Jesus said His Father was pleased to give you. Jesus looked at this little flock, very similar to us. I mean, most of us here are not wealthy. We are by the world standards across the globe. We, we live in a country and, and we ourselves probably are in the top 5% of wealthy people in the world. But, but in our own context, most of us would not be considered wealthy in this country. We're a little flock. And Jesus looked at a group of people like us and he said, I want you to know something. My father has given you something. And he didn't give it to you grudgingly. He didn't give it to you out of a hard heart. He didn't give it to you out of fists that were tightly grasping it. He gave you, out of his good pleasure, a kingdom. And the manifestation of radical generosity is when I use my life for the advancement of that kingdom by faithfully stewarding what he has given to me in a way that is marked by radical generosity. And when that radical generosity flows out of my life, it leads to God being glorified on account of an inexpressible gift that he has given to me. And so we could say it this way, regardless of the personal cost, when you and I partner with others so that we grow in grace and in knowledge, a harvest of righteousness will be reaped on account of our grace-enabled, gospel-focused, radical generosity. Now, there are examples of this in the Scripture. There are examples of people 
who basically decided because of the work of God in their life and because of the kingdom that God was establishing that they would take their entire life and use all of their resources at great personal cost to invest in what was God was doing for that kingdom in the life of others. The earliest example, or one of the earliest examples we have of this in Scripture is Moses. In Hebrews chapter 11, verses 23 through 28, we realize that there came a moment in Moses' life where he looked at all of the wealth and all of the honor and all of the power that was available to him in the world and the kingdom where he lived. He was raised in Pharaoh's palace. He was destined to sit on the throne of Egypt. He had everything to gain in that kingdom. But you know the story. Moses chose rather to be identified with a kingdom of slaves and to graciously serve them at great personal cost for the good of those people and for the glory of God. Moses. Samuel, years later, the prophet, invested personally and prayerfully. His entire life was an investment in people who were consistently moving in ways that God told them not to move. And doing things God told them not to do. And at the end of his life, as, as, as Samuel stood before these people, he reminded them of the investment he had made in them. He said, I chose to love you and to pray for you in, in spite of great personal disappointment and great discomfort and even grave personal danger from the king you insisted on having. I never ceased to pray for you. I never stopped loving you. I never stopped praying for you. And I never stopped investing in you. This is what radical generosity looked like in Samuel. Paul himself displayed this. Paul said, I gladly spend, and I'm gladly spent on your behalf. I choose to spend. I choose to be spent for you in the face of great personal rejection and even deep pain that has come into my life because of your rejection of me. And it looks like Jesus in Philippians chapter 2 who refused to grasp all the glory that was his in heaven and instead he chose to identify himself, to empty himself and take upon himself the form of a servant and to be born in the likeness of men, and to taste death for us, even the death of a cross. This is what radical generosity looked like in the lives of real people who walked around in Scripture. And this is what it is going to have to look like in our lives. It can't just be that we open up our wallet, or we write a check, or we make a deposit somewhere. That isn't radical generosity. That isn't what God is looking for. God doesn't need your money. In fact, we could say it this way. God never asks you to give your money. He only asks you to give His money. He never asks you to give your money. He only asks you to give His money. He never asks you to give your resources. He only asks you to give His resources. And the truth is, everything that you have, everything that I have, comes from God. God never asks us to give what we own. He always asks us to give what He owns. And that's the point 
that we're seeing as we look at Moses. Moses is saying God owns everything. God owns all the kingdoms. And when he asks me to give up this kingdom, I am not being slighted when he puts me in this kingdom. Samuel said to the Lord, you own everything about me. You own my time. You own my tread. You own my ministry. And if you want to put me in a ministry with difficult people, then fine. I'm going to give my life to that. And he can stand in front of those people at the end of the day and say to them, I never stopped ministering to you. I never stopped praying. So what is the model of this kind of gospel stewardship. What does it actually look like? That's how it manifests itself. But what does it actually look like? What are the things that drive it? And there are examples in the Scripture that you're familiar with. Principially, it looks like this. It looks like faithful stewardship, and we read about that in the parable of the ten talents. In Matthew chapter 25, verses 14 through 30, we see a story that Jesus told his disciples about servants who had a master, and the master entrusted to them resources. And you know the story. You know that two of the servants were rewarded for what they did with the master's resources. They invested them. They, they carefully worked those investments, and when the master returned, he received from them more than what he had given them. There was a return on the investment he had given to them, and it was a return that pleased him. But one of the servants, being fearful of the master, took what he had received and buried it, and then he went and did his own thing. It's not like the servant just sat at home and did nothing. He took what God gave him, put it away in a safe place, and then spent the time doing what mattered to him. And when the master came back, he had nothing to show except the one thing the master had given to him. And Jesus rebuked that servant. In fact, he castigated that servant for not investing what God had given to him. You know, God has given each one of us things. He's given us time. He's given us talents. He's given us abilities. And they're all different. He's given us resources. And when he returns, he is anticipating that we will have stewarded those resources faithfully. This is exactly what Paul was talking about when he told the Corinthians, it is required of stewards. There is one overarching thing that God expects of a steward, and that is that he be found what? Faithful. What does that mean? What does it mean to be faithful? Does it mean that I take what God has given me and I just put it in a safe place so that nothing can touch it? It can never be lost or diminished? Is that what it means to be faithful? That's why this parable of the talent principally displays the model of what God is looking for. Whatever God has given you, He intends for you to use. Whatever God has granted you, He intends for you to disperse. That is what a faithful steward does. Majestically, we see this in the person of Christ. This model doesn't just require 
faithful stewardship. It involves radical generosity. And we see a majestic expression of this in the person of Christ. In 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 9, Paul says, You Corinthians know something. You have experienced the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. And then he says this, That though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor. Moses was rich, but he chose to suffer affliction with God's people and in a greater day and in a better way, a better Moses, who himself was rich, chose to become poor so that you and me, through the poverty he embraced, might become rich. And when we hold too tightly to the earthly resources that this God has placed in our care, we fail to grasp the majestic immensity of His radical generosity to us. When we respond to God's radical generosity by ourselves being generous with the resources He puts in our hands, it brings immense pleasure to God. Your radical generosity brings God pleasure. You say, where do you see that in Scripture? You see it in the story that is recorded in Mark 12 when a widow came to the temple. Jesus was standing in the temple with his disciples and they were watching people coming to the temple to give their tithes and their gifts. And as they were watching, a widow, and it's obvious that she was poor, a widow comes and deposits her two mites in the treasury box. And as she walks away, Jesus looks at his disciples and he says to them, I want you to know something about that widow. I want you to see something. I want you to understand something. He says, truly, this is an immense word, verily, truly, I say to you, this poor widow has put in more than all of them, for they all contributed out of their abundance, but she out of her poverty, put in all she had to live in. What in the world would motivate a humble, poverty-stricken widow to give her last resource to God at the temple? What could possibly have moved her to do this? Can I suggest, using sanctified imagination, this is not in the text, this is just me thinking out loud, Maybe she remembered something in God's Word. A little bit later, we're going to find out where radical generosity comes from. It comes from something we confess about God. And maybe she remembered something about God in His Word that happened to another widow that lived centuries before her. Maybe she remembered the story of God's man, God's prophet, coming to an old to a, a, a widow, a poor widow, living in Zarephath, and saying to her, "I want you to give me to eat." And she says, "I have nothing to give. I have this little bit of flour. I have this little bit of oil, and, and we're gathering sticks to make our last meal." And, and God says to her through Elijah, "I want you to feed me first. And you know the story, don't you? How that. Widow's 
oil and, and her flour never ran out. And that story made it into the pages of inspired scripture. And maybe, just maybe, this widow, as she was reflecting on her last two mites, said, you know what? I want to give these mites to God. And God can take care of me just like he took care of another widow before me. You say, well, how in the world are you going there? And the answer is, God has given to you abundantly and graciously, but he's also given to you an incomparable gift. There is unfathomable grace in the inexpressible gift that God has given. Listen to how Paul talks about this in Romans chapter 8. What shall we say? Paul said, when we think about this kind of living, when we think about what God has done, when we think about the grace of God, what shall we say? If God is for us, who can be against us? And what's the answer to that? If God is for us, who can be against us? And the answer is nobody. Nobody in heaven, nobody on earth, Nobody in the realms, the spiritual realms, nobody can be against us if God is for us. And so here's the question. How do I know that God is for me? Paul goes on to say, He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him also graciously give us all things? God did not spare His own Son. It's not like when Jesus stood to take off the robes of His glory as He prepared to enter humanity and to be incarnated in human flesh. It's not like God held on tightly and said, No! You can't go. You mustn't go. God opened His hands. He did not spare his own son. And if God gave us that gift, how can we doubt that he's going to give us all that we need for life and godliness? Which really brings us to the last thing that we want to talk about this morning. We, we've looked at the meaning of what grace-enabled, gospel-focused stewardship is like. We, we saw how it manifests itself in our life. And, and, and we looked at a model of this, what it actually looks like in practice, but how is it accomplished? How is it cultivated? You know, these biblical texts that we've looked at show immense beauty and immense benefit that comes when we steward our life and our resources in these ways. But you and I both know that it's costly. You and I both know that it's risky. I mean, there was a moment where that widow held those two mites and as she deposited them in the treasury box, surely there was a question, now what? Now what? And radical generosity is going to put you in that place over and over and over again. When you give and it leaves your hand, there's going to come a moment where you're going to say, now what? How am I going to do what I need to do? How am I going to do this? How am I going to accomplish this? What about this? I may be able to force my hands to let go 
of whatever is in them that God is asking for, but how do I change my heart so that when it leaves my hand, it doesn't leave with a tight-fisted heart. It leaves with radical generosity flowing out of deep gratitude at the ability and the opportunity to give. I think there are moments in your life like there are in my life where you sense God wants you to do something with your time. And you look at your time and you're like, I already don't know how to get everything I need to get done done. My schedule is so packed. I, I You know, if, if I could make a 26-hour day, I would. Because I'm trying to live 26 hours in 24. And it's not working. And now my pastor or somebody at church is asking me to do this or to take on that. There is, is no possible way. Or maybe you're looking at your checkbook and God has been prompting you to do something for another servant or, or for, for some missionary or, or some project that's going on and you look at your checkbook and the math doesn't add up. You know how math works in your house? There's, there's the days of the month and there's the amount of money. And the trick is to make sure that when you get to the end of one, you have more of the other. And, and you, it's really bad when you have more month and money than money, right? It's really good when there's more money than month. But it's really bad when it's the other way. Most of us live and we're just praying to get to the end of the month and, and hoping that our money will last. And then God says, now, I'm going to interrupt all of that. I'm going to ask you to give. And there is this sense in which we we, 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 we give what he's asked us to, but, but our heart is like, now what? Now what do I do? So how do I cultivate the kind of heart, what is the means for this gospel-enabled stewardship that we're talking about? What, what does God have to do in me to cultivate radical generosity? Radical generosity is cultivated when we recognize that it comes from the strength that God supplies. I am never going to have the strength to do what God is asking me to do, whether it be in my time or in my talent or in my treasure. I'm never going to have the strength that, that, that this kind of living, producing this kind of giving, demands. I don't know why it's popping up like that, so I'm going to get real quiet. A certain person in the congregation will appreciate how quiet trying to get at this moment. My, my giving flows out of a living and my living flows out of my heart and my heart will never be strong enough to give until God supplies the strength it needs. So when you and I hear kind of a message from the Word of God like this and we panic because we say, I don't have the time, I don't have the strength, I don't have the ability, God says, no, wait a minute, you misunderstood. I am going to give you the strength that you need. We, we, we cultivate radical generosity because of the strength that God supplies, but we use the resources that God supplies. 2 Corinthians 9 has a very interesting quotation from Psalm 112. Paul says to the Corinthians these words, as it is written, he has distributed freely, he has given to the poor, his righteousness endures forever. He who supplies seed to the sower 
and bread for food will supply and multiply your seed for sowing and increase the harvest of your righteousness. Here is someone who has abundant seed and he reaches down into the seed bag and he pulls up huge fistfuls of seed and he just distributes it widely wherever he's walking because there is a harvest he hopes to reap. Now, when I first looked at this text, I have always thought this until I really got into it, but I I just assumed that the person in verse 9 who is distributing freely is the same person in verse 10 who's getting the harvest. I assumed it was God. God is the one who distributes freely. He gives to the poor. His righteousness endures forever. But as I looked at Psalm 112, I began to see that verse 9 and verse 10 are talking about two different people. Verse 9 is talking about a righteous man whose righteous life is marked by generosity. And verse 10 explains where he got the seed that he's generous with. There is someone who keeps putting seed in his bag. This is what verse 10 is talking about. It's referring to Isaiah 55, 10, where God talks about sending down rain from heaven and snow from heaven. And out of that, the earth reaps an abundant harvest. The same God who waters the earth and give seed for sowing, is the God who's going to put resources in your bag so that you can be a person whose life is marked by radical generosity. And He wants to use your radical generosity for gospel purposes. 2 Corinthians 9.10 has this statement, He who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food will supply and multiply your seed for sowing. That's God. And here's why. And increase the harvest of your righteousness. God has gospel ends to your radical generosity. When He puts seed in your bag, when He puts resources in your hand, when He gives talents to your life, and He tells you, I want you to be radically generous with what I've given you. I want you to use your life for gospel ends. There are some things that God is up to. One of the things is in verse 10. A harvest of righteousness will grow and increase. When God puts resources in your hand, and you radically, out of radical generosity, you sow those resources for gospel purposes, there will be other people who receive the righteousness of Christ out of your generosity. Let me give you a tangible way in which this happens. Every week or every month, most of you in this room give of your hard-earned wealth, your hard-earned resources to this assembly. And part of what you give goes to support gospel partners, gospel risk-takers, that are taking the gospel of Jesus Christ that we enjoy here to other places in the world. And we never think about that other than from time to time when we see one of them or we hear about one of them or Pastor Brian gets up and reminds us to pray for them or holds up the prayer card with all of their names on it and then, oh, yeah, 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 we're part of this. But God never forgets. 
And every week, every month, as you give your money and a portion of that goes to this, one day there's a, a soul that gets harvested. Maybe there's a church that gets planted. Maybe there's a marriage that gets saved. You give every week to the gospel purposes at Palmetto Baptist Church, and you may not know this, but from time to time, the church takes some of that money and buys a book on marriage to give to a couple who are starting their marriage. And that little investment, you have no idea the harvest of righteousness that could come in that marriage. God says, when you are radically generous with what I have given you, there are gospel ends that come. And one of those ends is a harvest of righteousness. But another end is this. God will enrich you so that your life can grow in radical generosity. I mean, folks, we don't give so that God gives back to us. It's not, this isn't some form, some sanctified uh, pr- prosperity gospel in, in our lives. It's not like, oh, I'm going to give God because if I just give God this, then God will give me more back. That's not what's going on here. But God says this, listen, when, when you run out of seed and you're sowing the seed I gave you for gospel purposes, I'm going to enrich your bag. I'm going to put more seed. I'm going to give you more ability and more talent. And you're going to have more opportunity for gospel work. Notice in verse 12, for the ministry of this service is not only supplying the needs of the saints, so somebody's needs are being met, but it is overflowing in many thanksgivings to God. When this happens, and out of your radical generosity, somebody's need is met, they are going to glorify God, and they're going to be thankful for you. And that's what we read in verse 13. By their approval of this service, they will glorify God. And that brings us to this. Where does all of this come from? And I want you to look at a statement that Paul says to the Corinthians in verse 13 of 2 Corinthians 9. All of this comes. The glory that God gets because of your radical generosity comes because of your submission. Radical generosity is never going to be true in my life until I submit to something. The kind of radical generosity that you experienced from Christ came when Christ submitted to the will of His Father. And the kind of radical generosity that needs to flow out of my life and out of your life needs to flow out of, out of a submission that was similar to Christ. So what are we submitting to? This submission comes from our confession, something we say we believe about the gospel of Christ. That's why we're talking about grace-enabled gospel-focused stewardship. This is a stewardship that will never please God. It is a stewardship that will never benefit others unless it flows out of a heart that is submitted to a confession that you believe about God. And here's what you believe about God. You believe that God is a giver and He's not a taker. You believe that God is a giver. 
The heart of the gospel is an announcement that the biggest giver in the universe, the most radically generous person in the universe, is God. He has richly supplied everything that you need and everything that I need. That is the theological foundation for all of our giving. It comes out of a confession that we submit to. A confession that shapes my life. It shapes how I think. It shapes how I live. And the confession is the gospel of Jesus Christ. And at the heart of that gospel is a radically generous God who did not spare His own Son. Who said no to His own Son. The night of His death, the evening before His death, He said no to His Son so He could say yes to you. This is a radically generous God. And your generosity and mine will flow out of that theological foundation. But it is prepared in a certain way. The Old Testament talks about how God prepared His people to give in regular measured ways to the support of what He was doing for His glory in their midst. How were they going to be a kingdom of priests? How were they going to display the glory of God to the nations? And God said to them, for that you need a tribe of priests, you need a tabernacle, you need a temple, you need a worship system. And the way that you're going to participate in all of this the way that you're going to engage in all of this is you're going to take the resources I give you and you're going to give them for the support of this. And God says you're going to do it in a regulated, measured, regular way and it's called the tithe. Think of the Old Testament tithe as the first place in your Bible where God teaches people about their spiritual responsibility and personal obligation to give regularly and proportionately. God said to His people, I want you to give to my purposes. I have a system in place for your good and for my glory and for the benefit of the nations. And as you give, I want you to give regularly, I want you to give consistently, and I want you to give a certain measure of your income. And we call that the tithe. This is how God regulated and rewarded the consistent, obedient giving of His people. And that's the whole point to Malachi chapter 3. Now think about it this way. Let me give you an illustration. When you first learned how to ride a bike, how many of you remember the very first time you set out to ride a bike? Can I see your hands? How many of you really remember that day? Okay, I'm, uh, so some of you are, are nodding your head going, I don't remember that day. It was too painful. How many of you suffered at least one fall the first time that you tried to ride your bike? Yeah, right? You know, riding a bike is fearful. It's a fearful experience. But think about the very first time, and, and, and then your dad came up with this amazing, miraculous way to teach you how to ride a bike so that you could ride fearfully, you could travel at the speed of light, you, you could have those little ribbons that were hanging out of the handlebars just flowing behind you, you could be hanging, banging on that little bell as you were just pedaling with all of your might, and you had no fear of falling because on the back wheel of that bike were two other little wheels. Call what? Training wheels. Aren't training wheels the best? They are awesome. They are incredible. You remember your first training wheels? So what would happen without those training wheels? Some of us would never have learned to ride a bike. You know, in the Old Testament, God had training wheels. 
to help his people become radically generous and understand what it looked like, and it was called the tithe. The tithe was God's way of training his people to be like him. God says, I've given you everything you need. I've supplied bread from heaven. I've given you water out of a rock. I gave you Egypt's treasure on the way out the door. I've made sure you have what you need to wear. Your clothes never wear out. Your shoelaces don't even ever break. That would be a really cool gift, wouldn't it? You ever gotten up one day and you're in a hurry and you're pulling on your, you've got to remember to put your pants on before your shoes and, and you, 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 get, you get dressed and then you put your shoe on and, and you're, you're looking at your clock and, and then as you, you go to yank up on those shoelaces, you hear a snap. Oh, your whole day is shot. Because of a shoelace. Now you got to lick the little end of the shoelace and try to get it to come through the little holes and, you know, just get duct tape and wrap it around your shoe and go for the day. I mean, a broken shoelace is not a minor thing. And for all of the years God's people were in the wilderness, God said, look, I'm going to be so generous to you that not one shoelace among you is going to break. What a gift. And God says, now, I want you to be like me and to help you learn how to be like me. We're going to start with some training wheels. It's called the tithe. Can I suggest to you that you and I sometimes need training wheels like that in our own radical generosity? Sometimes we're afraid to talk about the tithe because it's Old Testament. And I realize we're not under the Old Testament and we don't have the same legal obligations before before God to obey certain uh, conditions that were in the Mosaic Covenant. But, but God put some training wheels in the Old Testament to help his people learn how to be radical, gen, uh, radically generous. And, and ladies and gentlemen, this morning, can I suggest to you that if you are not tithing, maybe it's time to put the training wheels back on. So there's a theological foundation. There's an Old Testament preparation, but there's a New Testament expression. And Paul talks about this New Testament expression when he talks about the regular, consistent, unmeasured, unmeasured, and joy-filled giving that God desires of His people. God is saying to you, you can do more than the training wheels. I mean, to go back to our illustration of riding a bike, you know, let's say, you know, sometimes uh, Pastor Ben uh, will call me up or I'll call him up and, and he'll say, hey, would you like to go for a bike ride? Now, we've never done it because our schedules haven't quite matched up yet, but one of these days, we're going to get together and we're going to bring our bikes and we're going to go on a bike ride. And I, I'm, I'm actually looking forward to that because I hear that Pastor Ben is a monster bike rider. But can you imagine when we get there and Pastor Ben's got his bike out and, and he's ripping on his helmet and he's got his little bike clothes on and his little bike uh, drink thingy that you put in the... I mean, you have all this, right, Ben? Okay, so I'm not making this up. And he just, you know, got his little bike thing, bike juice that he puts in his little bike holder. And, uh, and I'm like, yeah, this is awesome. And I get out and I rip on my bike helmet and I got my little bike shoes that you're supposed to wear because everybody knows you can't just wear, wear regular shoes when you really bike. You got to have bike shoes. So I got my bike shoes, my bike pants, my bike shirt, my bike helmet, my little bike juice, and I rip out my bike. And Ben's like, why does your bike have four wheels? I'm like, oh, Pastor Ben, um, this is safety. Safety first. And Pastor Ben's like, 
yeah, but like those little wheels on the edge there, they're not supposed to be there. Oh, I've always had them. I, I've always had these wheels that are on this bike were the same wheels that I got when I was like six and I got my first bike. They are awesome. Trust me, they're going to be just fine. And Ben's like, uh, you know what, Pastor? Um, I think I have a counseling appointment right now. And, uh, but you go ahead. I'll, I'll, I'll catch up. You don't need training wheels once you learn and have grown and matured as a bike rider. Can I suggest to you? You don't need a legal system called the tithe once you've understood the radical generosity that God is delighted in and has supplied for you. And so as we think about what all this means for us, can I just encourage you, and this is where we're going with the series, can I encourage you as we pray here in just a moment to think seriously about three commitments God has been so good to us. He's been so generous to us. He didn't spare his son. He put seed in our bag. He's promised to meet all of our needs. Would you be willing to take what God has given you, the time that God has given you, the abilities God has given you, the talents that God has given you, would you be willing to take all of that before the Lord and say, God, I want you to help me make three commitments this year. Commitment number one. Lord, would you help me to take my time? Would you help me to take my abilities? Would you help me to take what you've entrusted me with? Would you help me to invest them in one gospel relationship? One gospel relationship. I'm not talking about running up to somebody and quickly throwing the plan of salvation on the table and just praying and be done. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about you investing over the next 12 months relationally in one individual. Maybe it's your neighbor. Maybe it's somebody you work with. Maybe it's somebody at school where, where you attend. Or, or maybe it's somebody you work out with. Or maybe it's somebody you haven't met yet. But there is somebody and you're saying to God, Lord, would you supply the person? Would you supply the relationship? Would you supply the time? Would you supply the willingness? Would you work in me so that I am, am willing to do? It is, it is God who works in us. And so God, would you work in me so that I am willing to take the next 12 months and make a significant relational invest, investment in one person for the gospel's sake? So that by the end of this year, by the grace of God, I will have had multiple opportunities to talk about the gospel. Multiple opportunities to display the power of the gospel and the beauty of the gospel. God, would you help me to make one significant investment in one gospel relationship? Commitment number two. God, with your strength, would you help me to engage in one significant ministry opportunity at our church. Would you consider the fact that the work that is done here is done by people like you? And some of those people are tired. Some of those people have been doing it for a long time. And you have time and you have ability and you have resources and you're saying, yeah, but I don't have... I don't have them in abundance, but, but, and that's the point. We're saying, God, would you help me? Would you supply the strength that I need to commit to one significant ministry opportunity? One gospel relationship 
One significant ministry opportunity, one service. And number three, would you commit with God's help to engage in a significant financial sacrifice of your resources? For some of you, it may be as simple as this. God, this year, I really want to take a step of obedience. I want to start being the kind of person that gives regularly to your work. We're not talking about an amount. We're talking that out of the generosity that God has given to you, you would take, like we've been talking about this morning, and give back to Him on a weekly or a monthly basis. You would take that significant step. Many of you are already doing that. And so for you, it might be as simple as this. God, in addition to my regular giving, I'm going to ask you to give me more so that I can give more. Lord, if you'll supply this amount, and maybe there's an amount that you and God agree on, if you'll supply this amount and and you do it in ways that, that make it clear to me that you supplied it, then Lord, I will give this to your work. One gospel relationship. One ministry service. And one financial gift. To display regular generosity that flows from a life that has been resourced so generously by God. Lord, we thank You this morning for Your goodness to us. Lord, You did not spare Your own Son, but You gave Him freely and joyfully. And He came and for the joy that was set before Him, He ministered and He served and He gave so that we might be made rich. And so, Lord, out of the richness that we enjoy, would You help us to serve You? Would You give us one gospel relationship? Would You give us one ministry service? And would You give us one way in which we can invest Your resources back into the work that You're doing? And we'll thank You for it in Jesus' name. Amen.